Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at University of Technology, Sydney. And my producer is Anthony Dockrell. The most important news story in the media this year wasn't the exposure of Michelle Guthrie and Justine Milne's remarkable bun fight at the OK Corral on Harris Street in Sydney, but the merging of Fairfax and Channel 9. The merger was a direct result of the change in laws after the government relaxed the restrictions on cross-media ownership, and the views on the merger are, unsurprisingly, been passionate and varied. You would expect nothing else. Many people were relieved, especially that Fairfax, the company, wasn't going to get broken up by private equity and flogged off. But then some felt sad uh, for the end of one of the major institutions in the media landscape, and they would argue that it's more of a takeover by Channel 9. So it's certainly true that the name Fairfax will no longer be part of the news media landscape, and that's after 177 years. But you might say, well, what's in a name? Or you might worry about what the name stands for and whether the values like independent reporting will be lost. So tonight's guest is Greg Highwood, who's uniquely qualified, I think, to answer that and many more questions. He's the boss of Fairfax, who is also departing the company, though perhaps not the media scene. We might talk about that in a while. Um, He is literally the trainee who ended up becoming the CEO. Um, Greg, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Peter. Let's let's deal with that name thing first. What's what's being lost in losing the name Fairfax? There's a lot of history in it. 187 year old company name. Um, it won't be lost in a technical sense, in the sense that it will become a fully owned subsidiary of of Nine, and so all of our mastheads will sit under that subsidiary brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it won't be out in the public in the way Fairfax mm. has been in the past. Well, the essential, yeah. the essential issue yeah. is, is you know, what does Fairfax stand for? And Fairfax stands for high quality independent journalism, and people relate to that journalism and engage with that journalism through those mastheads. And in Sydney, it's the Sydney Morning Herald. Melbourne, it's the Age. Nationally, for the business audience, it's the Australian Financial Review. 
And we have a whole range of other publications across the country, all of which serve their communities very well. So in terms of the public mm. and in terms of the journalism, it is no change. It is business as usual and hopefully business as better. So I'm not a sen- sentimentalist and I know you're not, but a lot of journals within Fairfax say, well, couldn't the name been retained in some way? It wasn't, wasn't that an option in some way? Look, it was a... It was a 51-49% merger. Mm. Fairfax was 49, mm-hmm. 9 was 51. Mm-hmm. 9 chose t- to maintain its, so they were corporate, the it, its corporate position. Yeah. And, and that's, that's absolutely fair enough. But there's also the broader issue of, and you know, we discussed it internally, I mean, mm. the relevance of that name uh, is less and less. The family, in any economic sense disengaged some years ago. They certainly lost control of the company uh, in 1987, mm. generations ago. Mm. The issue was what's, um, what's important here? The journalism's important and what's not, not the family name. And I think mm-hmm. this, this, this um, won't be an issue uh, so long as the journalism and the quality of the journalism is maintained and those mastheads continue to do that job. So how do we assure that? How do, we, how do you get assurances of that? Because, okay, I agree. Oh, look, I agree with you broadly. The, the name is the name and, the, mm. the, and the, everything you just said is entirely so. Um, but how do we get assurances about the key thing, which is the quality of the journalism? Well, there's two aspects of it. Uh, the Board of Fairfax, when it became a listed company in 1992, signed up to a Charter of Independence, which mm. basically says... Uh, the board approves the appointment of editors and any editors then have full control of editorial policy within a prescribed budget. Mm -hmm. That's one aspect of it. But I think actually that's a piece of paper. Uh, The more important aspect of it is the expectations of the readers of those publications. You know, these, and I've said many times, what... Fairfax does and our publications do is a public good in a commercial model. Mm -hmm. And the public good is our journalism. We ask questions of institutions and people in power. They can't or won't ask of themselves. But underpinning that is a business. Mm -hmm. And to run that business, you have to focus on the audience that you serve and you have to hold that audience. That audience Mm -hmm. is important for advertising revenue. It's important for subscription revenue. And if you lose that audience because you undermine the quality or independence of that journalism, you kill the business. And to me, a business model underpins the quality of that journalism and no rational uh, manager of a business, and Nine is a very rational manager of a business, would put that under threat. It's got a vested interest in... Does it understand those audiences, though? Or what, is this going to be a learning curve... For nine, right? well, so Fairfax it, understands this audience. If you if you look at who's leaving, I'm leaving, and a group of yeah. corporate people are leaving: general counsel, head of strategy, CFO, hmm. uh, some some well, you comms people. You understand those Fairfax audiences? Yeah. You're, 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 yeah, you're through yeah. and through. You're a yeah, but I tell you what, the the people who run those businesses hmm. and run those mastheads understand them very intimately. So Chris Jantz who runs the Metro Media business, those three major mastheads, mm. James Chessel, who's editorial director, you know, Lisa Davies, Alex Lavelle, who are the editors, Michael Stutchbury. 
you know, they've got their arms around those publications. They know that audience. That's what's important, really not the corporate end of it. The corporate, the, the corporate management of companies come and go. It's whether the core mm. part of the business is in good hands and, and these mastheads are in great hands. Mm. Well, that's very humble of you to say that you don't matter. You, look, what you do as a CEO is that you set a direction mm, okay. and you make sure that that direction um, is delivered. And it's an important role. I'm not, I'm not, not saying it doesn't matter, but uh, it's critically important um, uh, that uh, those mastheads are managed well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't foresee that any fundamental change in the, the direction for those mastheads. If you look at them, mm. you know, it's a bit of a global phenomenon in the sense that these mastheads are now getting revenue growth. Not many mastheads like the Sydney Morning Herald Age Financial Review in mid-mark- in mid-sized markets globally are getting revenue growth. And you know, we got we got some earnings growth, mm-hmm. some profit growth basically through cost out. Yep. But we've turned it around and we're now getting revenue growth and that's the crit- critical factor for the the sustain for sustaining that business model right, that right. We'll get, we're going to get to that because that's a really interesting point um, I just for the benefit of li- listeners I wanted to r- roll this back a little bit mm. um, you were a cadet or a trainee mm. a reporter a correspondent an editor an editor-in-chief a publisher the editorial steward of the fin- financial review the SMH the age and the past eight years the CEO so during that time, Fairfax has been as well known for job cuts, rightly or wrongly, but for cutting journalists' jobs as it has been for Walkley's. How do you think about your legacy? Is your legacy this merger or is your legacy this taking some very tough decisions in you know, a very tough market? How do you think about that? Look, what we were faced with eight years ago was an organisation that was facing an existential threat because... Mm the sources of revenue were under extraordinary threat. Print revenue was dropping at $100 million a year. The profit of the company was four or $500 million. You continue that sort of revenue drop and the banks come in and take over the company mm-hmm. in three years. So if, if you're talking about 2011, there was the threat that Fairfax, everything would be done and dusted by 2015. So what we needed to do was do a couple of things. We needed to say, look, what resources do we really need to run these organisations mm-hmm. and keep the quality of that journalism and that scale of journalism where it, where it needs to be? And we found that, you know, because Fairfax had been a virtual monopolist mm-hmm. around key sources of classified revenue for jobs, homes and cars in print, it had built up massive amounts of cost that it didn't need. I mean, I remember there was a, a garage in Ultima around the corner from the main office that employed 52 mechanics to look after the executive car fleet. What's that got to do with journalism? True. So, and and there were there were examples like that all the way through the organisation. So, is, so it fa- is it fair to say that most of the cost cutting has been borne by the Editorial. I mean, no, there's, no, see, well, that's, there's 1,100 Fairfax journals have gone since 2011. Yeah, but there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of turnover in that. Look, what's occurred is if you look yep. if you look back, 
we've we've taken something in the order of five or six hundred million dollars out of that cost base. And frankly, you know, the group who've who've worked to do this have saved the company to put it in a position hmm. where where it can it can now merge and and continue to grow. Um, our focus was always on on protecting that frontline reporter because if we didn't have what I call at-scale journalism, hundreds of reporters inside, out, out there reporting, uh, the business and the mastheads wouldn't survive. Mm. So most of the, the vast majority of the cost-cutting came from the back end. It, it came out of, out of um, printing production, the printing presses, the all of that back end, mm-hmm. and and other services that that service the uh, service the journalism. So there's that still, was, still so that was the focus. But I mean, just to the point, yeah, yeah. Because a third of the workforce was um, editorial, mm. right? We had to reduce the numbers. But what we did was we focused upon the sub-editing component rather than the reporting component. And we save money by outsourcing that sub-editing component because technology enabled us to do that. So, look, there was a lot of thought put into this and it wasn't popular, but fundamentally it was necessary. And if I go back to when I started in in journalism in 1976... Mm. A different world. A different world. But, but there were 25 reporters on the Financial Review, 24 good ones and me. And... Uh, now there's 150, and if and they're all working and there was five s- times harder than they were in 1976, w- and and probably earning far less. Well, as a know, proportion, wouldn't you in say? In 1976, there was a lot of time spent at the pub, <laughs> and there was there was seven, not by you, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, well, I just I engaged in <laughs> engaged the cult- in the culture at the time, <laughs> but but the but there were 70 reporters on the Herald. There was 70 yeah, reporters that- on the on the Age. And now there's 150, 200 in each. So look, yeah. it's it's it is a different world, but it's very important to for everyone to understand that through this very very difficult process, and there was a lot of pain felt by a lot of people. Uh, we absolutely focused on maintaining that reporting function. I remember you uh, once telling Fairfax staff. That uh, you were a bastard, but at least you were their bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I said that. Oh, I think you did. Did I? Oh well. well I was paraf- Maybe I've always thought you said uh, it. I was paraphr- I was paraphrasing um, um, when I moved from the Financial Review into uh, the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah. That was a phrase used to me right. by my predecessor. He said yeah, he right. might have been a bastard, but he was yeah. our bastard. Right. Does it matter how you remembered? Just does it? Do you no, think about that? Look, people said, you know, what are your regrets? So say, how can you regret anything um, other than the impact upon people hmm. if we we move from a position where there was an existential threat hmm. to the organisation and we've come through it? Hmm. And, you know, sure, you might have done this a bit differently and that a bit differently, but fundamentally you sort of got to where you needed to get to. You did inherit a company that, you know, and there's been a lot of books written on this, famously... Uh, let's put it politely, failed to make the most of the digital revolution in the first instance, mm. didn't buy the things that went on to be worth more than the Fairfax themselves, the likes of mm. Seek and what have you. Mm. Did you Were you always sort of fighting catch-up? 
because of those decisions? Well, I'm not wanting, you know, we can, you know, books have been written look, about Hitler, et cetera, but do, were you always fighting catch-up? We were all play, always playing catch-up. Decisions were taken at the turn of the century, hmm. 21st century, by the company, which were incorrect in terms of where they needed to be. They they didn't when that when they when Fairfax invested in digital, it didn't invest heavily enough where it should have, which was jobs, homes, cars, yep. and it didn't translate its print position to an online position. And it could have, you know, it was well set up to do. The brands were there, but but the company decided to disinvest and invest in other sorts of digital businesses, which didn't come to fruition. Um, so what we found, you know, in about 2011 was um, exactly what you're saying, some lost opportunity, but there was one business in there that had a heartbeat mm-hmm. um, and it had a good position in real estate listings in inner Sydney. And what we did is we invested very heavily in that business, which is called Domain. It had been around since 1998, but it just hadn't been looked after adequately. And we put a strategy in there. We invested in it. And that was the parallel component of of what we did. We certainly took cost out, but we built other businesses. We built Domain up. And so we built shareholder value up, Mm -hmm. which gave us the credibility with shareholders to continue the transformation of the publishing business. That was a very important component of that. And we also invested in 50-50 with nine in Stan, mm-hmm. with the streaming um, yep. Yep. video on demand business. And that so was important. So you should have been uh, CEO 10 years before you actually became CEO. Well... I mean, I know we can all be editor of hindsight. Yeah, but we, yeah, it's, 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 do, it's you, do you, you know, one of the things that's important to understand is that um, we were operating, which what I'm saying is an ex- existential threat. Yeah, yeah. This was a burning platform. So if you've been, oh, you had I'm, you had to do something. Sure. Right? No, all I'm saying previous is previous leaders yep. had had not been in that position, and they thought that incremental decisions yes. were perhaps adequate. Have you ever asked um, or talked to Fred Hilmer, for instance, about that sort of period? No. Why not? Well, Fred and I parted ways in 2003. I was. I was head of, of the age in Melbourne and and, and Fred and I Didn't saw, saw the future of the business in a different way and mm. he was CEO, so I left. Hmm. But in these, or maybe you have a chance now. Unlikely. Look, you know, I believe, look, there's a lot of different perspectives mm-hmm. and a lot of different, around different subjects and different issues and, you know, I'm always open for discussion about anything. I mean... But look, I think the important thing is that we've got to where we got we got to sure. where we got to. So you told the Senate last year, the Senate inquiry into public interest journalism, that it was a good time, a great time to be entering journalism, mm. and that there was a sort. There's never been uh, as good as high. There's never been as much high quality journalism mm. around as there is now. Mm. Now, I I like you want to share uh, an optimistic view about the news media industry and what it does and all that, but. On what basis would you say it's a great time to be entering journalism? Well, because it's more important than it's ever been. You know, what we have is that we have um, questioning around its relevance, mm-hmm. and uh, we have um, social media platforms that enable the rapid spread of disinformation. And if you want to be 
if you want to make a contribution to your community, journalism is a great place to be at the moment mm. because it's important. Making an attempt, a genuine attempt, to get to the truth of the matter is enormously valuable. Mm-hmm. No argument about it. Uh, but, you know, back to a previous p- point in our conversation, it is true that journals now are busier than before. They earn less money. They're probably working harder and they're working in businesses that are still have a large degree of uncertainty around them as to the business model. So all those things, even though I'm an optimist like you, would suggest that there is still it's still uh, a work in progress. This journalism, like look, I don't think we turn, we can can't turn the the clock back. I mean, I think that there's a perception that Peter, that the time when we came into journalism was normal. Mm. It wasn't normal. It mm. wasn't normal. It hadn't been normal prior to the late seventies because um, the companies weren't that profitable before then because they had an enormous workforce. They, a third of the workforce were compositors. Then we moved from hot metal mm-hmm. to cold to um, to cold type. And that meant we didn't need compositors. So a third of the workforce left. Mm-hmm. A third. Mm. Yeah, huge numbers. Yeah. And there was more investment in journalism. But, yeah. but moreover, the economy was growing. And through the 80s and 90s, there was an enormous amount of money in the media because it basically had an oligopolistic or monopolistic position in many markets. Mm. And we thought that was normal. Mm. And we thought that the investment we saw around us in both in terms of editorial numbers and everything else, including those 52 mechanics, was, was appropriate. The internet changed that. The internet dropped the barrier to entry. Anybody could become a publisher and we've seen it disrupt not just the classified ad market but the display ad market and we live in a massively competitive media environment. And that means the margins for earnings and profits are much tighter than they ever were. That means that the cost base is much tighter than ever was and that's the way it's going to continue. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the value of what we do is less important. In no. fact, as we're talking about, it's more important. Perhaps, and and yeah. it's, it's also, I mean, <laughs> fundamentally, I mean, I, I walked into an office in 1976 with typewriters, telex machines, full ashtrays, everyone smoking in the office, broken chairs. It, but the job was fundamentally the same. It was trying to find the story, calling people up, talking to them, getting to the bottom of it. The technologies have changed and the work environment's changed, but it's critical. And no one really questioned the value of what we did then. They are now, and so it's more important. Do you think, um, when you look forward, how is journalism going to make money? Is it all about scale? I mean, it's all basically about Fairfax and Nine, big mergers, big scale. Is that how it's going to make money? Which kind of partly part of that merger, of course, is cutting fifty million bucks out of the cost base as well. Yeah, but I mean, but what Hugh Marks has said is that that's not going out of content. Mm. Which, and when he talks about content, it's not just TV content; it's also it's also journalism. I mean, that's what we had to think through. I mean, the, the proudest thing from my experience, my, my recent experience at Fairfax is the way the organisation thought its way through these issues, 
how do you make money? Mm-hmm. And So and, how does it make money? Well, what you do is that you focus on the audience that you serve mm-hmm. and technology enables you to identify who that audience is. Advertising um, is a lot more direct and you can identify and use data to identify um, and direct your advertising much more specifically than you used to in the, in the past. Um, people are now, because of the threat to truth, are willing to pay for quality journalism in a way that they weren't five years ago. So you're getting a much higher level of digital subscription. Um, Your newspaper production is falling because the vast majority of people are getting their content Mm. through digital platforms. That reduces your costs Mm. because it's incredibly expensive to produce and distribute a newspaper. Uh, And then there's the other thing that we that we found that the two big assets, business assets for uh, publishers are a very large audience and a lot of marketing inventory that they have, mm-hmm. both digital and, and print. And you can support your other businesses through your publishing business. So we supported Domain and marketed Domain very heavily and that was an important part of its success. And so you can add value to publishing by supporting these other businesses, by adding value for shareholders, mm-hmm. and is, and the same with Stan. And so therefore, it's there's sort of a strategic stretch involved now that wasn't it wasn't just advertising, blunt advertising, and and newspaper sales. Mm. It's it's more nuanced, but you can do it. But you've got to be good at it, and you've got to be smart, and you just can't expect the truck to back up to the front of the office and tip the money in the way it used to happen. Do you think print will survive another decade? I think it's possible, yeah. Um, I mean, you've, you've changed your attitude a little bit. A few uh, years ago, well, you were a bit look, down look, on print. Look, I had... I wanted to make the point, mm. an exaggerated point, you, internally, well, make it. <laughs> internally and externally, because it was very important internally for the organisation to stop the debate about whether or not we should be defending print or going to the future. And we had to stop that debate. And we had to say the future is digital and print will end one day, which it will, and to get the organisation there. And we also had to signal to our investors that we were about the future and we weren't about to use their money to continue to print unprofitable papers. Right. So there was there was a method in that and You don't regret I don't scaring regret the shit it. out of everyone. No, I don't regret it because yeah. it had the desired effect. Mm-hmm. Okay. We needed a cultural shift inside the organization because when I got back, the organization was still debating that issue and it couldn't afford it or afford to. We just had to set a oh. s- set a direction for the future. Do you think nine will keep print as long as there's I mean is there money in print? Oh yeah there's money in print. And in fact that's the beauty of, of what's occurring now is that is that you're starting to see a leveling off of the print revenue decline. You're starting to see um, marketers appreciate the value of it. Uh, it was massively unfashionable for a long time. And and marketers just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Now they can see the value of it, and so there's a big mitigation in 
in print decline, and that's helping the mastheads through this. So depending on, and we're doing, you know, News and Fairfax have done a, a print arrangement mm. so that we, we, both organisations are saving money on printing and distribution. All these factors continue um, continue to to provide an audience for print. But the, but remember, I mean, the, the average age of a of a of a metropolitan newspaper reader um, is close to sixty five now. Older than you. Just older. Than Just me. older than you. Just older than me. <laughs> so so there is a sense that that um, most of the of the population are choosing to get their news and information off digital platforms. Mm, mm. Let's um, switch it up a little bit. What do you think of the Judas Nielsen hundred million dollars? Oh, I think it's fabulous. I mean, I, it, it it's an amazing number. It's an amazing number, and and it will go a long way. And I I think this sort of philanthropy is of this scale around let's just say it a controversial area like journalism. Mm. I mean, you don't get loved yeah. by becoming a journalist. So if you're thinking of becoming a journalist, don't expect people to yeah. like you. Yes. Right? Um, and so to put uh, that amount of money into journalism co- because she can see the community value mm. on the question, in questioning institutions and people in power, I think is is extraordinary. And Will Fairfax, or should I say nine, get some dough out of it, do you think? Oh look, I'm not sure how it's how it's going to work. Well, no one seems to be. But yeah, there but, was some reference to. But I don't think it. I, I think it's it's a matter of. I think the 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 commercial media operators have to work through their commercial models and stand on their own two feet. That's terribly important, and I think that's important in the maintenance of independent journalism. The moment you're beholden to for to particular groups. Hmm. To a very large scale, there is some there, there is a potential for. But there, there people seems to on the face the independence. of it, there seems on the face of it, no reason why uh, some of that money couldn't go to a commercial operation. I mean, she's talked about, for instance, doubling the number of Indonesian correspondents. Well, that's not something you would do on a commercial basis, probably, maybe, but pro- probably not. So, if look, look, we had that debate in inside Fairfax, and mm. you know, I was very supportive of continuing our. Our, um, our foreign presence, um, because it is important that we we get an Australian perspective. It's an important training ground for mm. for journalists. I'd been through it myself. I was fortunate enough to work out of Washington and London for the Financial Review, and and there's a lot of value in that. Mm. Let's see how it works and yeah. and and why it's laid out. And every organisation will have to make its own call about about how it wants to work with the with the institute. I have one more, I think possibly the final question about Fairfax. Of all the consultants who have been in and out of Fairfax, the private consultants, a legion of consultants, as you know, as well as I know, how many of them actually made a solid suggestion about increasing revenue rather than cutting costs? Oh, I think we used used Bain Mm. for what we called the transformation component, which was a lot of cost out. Um, we used so did we 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 used Boston Consulting f- mm-hmm. to to work up a range of opportunities and a remaking of the metro model. We mm. used McKinsey around the regional business, but mm. look, 
But revenues? I, did they talk about? Yeah, revenues? they talk always talked about revenues. Mm-hmm. What's it, what's really important here is is <laughs> one thing you learn, and I, I mean, I learned it as an editor. I came back from Washington, um, and found myself editor of the Financial Review, running a news conference. And what I found in that news conference is that you walked in with a particular perspective of the world, and you walked out with a different and more informed view of the world by getting all those ideas into mm. the middle of the table. Mm. And high-quality advice, and these organisations give high-quality advice, are enormously valuable. And I do not subscribe to the view that there's a problem with consultants. Mm. What consultants did to us was question a lot of conceptions inside the business that were locked in and needed to be broken through on. And then they left a methodology around how, once we'd worked through those issues, how we could then execute against them. And I thought they were enormously valuable. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about the uh, platforms and then we'll, we'll get close to wrapping it up. Um, do you think the news media industry, not Fairfax in particular, but the news media industry failed to understand how vital Facebook in particular, but Facebook, Google, et cetera, would become and how they would, in effect, cut your lunch in terms of advertising? I think think the scale of it probably caught people a bit unawares, yeah. I think think that there was a sense that, that amongst the publishers that we had, large-scale audiences, and that would, particularly for our digital advertising, would keep us in the game Hmm. in a way that wasn't the case. And uh, what Google and Facebook could come up with for advertisers was way more scale Hmm. and a massively efficient way to identify exactly which audience... And, the and advertiser still, and, wanted to, to and the publishers still can't compete with that. Well, the more scale you have, the better, because mm, you got more uh, data. The more platforms you have in marketing, mm. and this is why the nine merge is mm. important. You can offer up, you can offer up print and digital and free to air and catch up TV and radio, right around a single brief for advertisers. This is important, and as the debate around the value of the big over the tops and the security of the brand security around that is develops. You're seeing marketers not depend as much on them as they did in the past and balance their risk much Mm. more by using traditional forms more than they did. And we're starting to see that come through. So do you see Facebook in particular as a sort of frenemy? What you know, a friend that's an enemy, an enemy that's a friend. Oh, well, no, I wouldn't put it like that. I mean, we've got a. Let's just talk Google because I think okay. Google is way more developed in terms of its mm. understanding. And you have a deal with them. Well, well but but, but, it, but mm. on the basis of this, right? It was a mutual. was mutually beneficial. Google has an issue. It needs high quality news and information because it's got a promise to its customers that if you search on Google, that's what you get. Mm-hmm. If there's no traditional publishers around, mm-hmm. goodbye to high-quality news and information. So it needed that. What Fairfax wanted was a much 
more robust digital advertising environment. Uh, and if you put our quality inventory with their very large scale, it's mutually beneficial. Mm. That's the way that you want to work. Now, we haven't seen that evident from that, that sort of approach evident from Facebook, but we certainly have from Google. And, and that's something that, that took a long time to work that mm. through, but it's something that's working really well for us. And I, I, again, that's an issue where, you know, I'm just not a believer in, in doing anything other than working with the environment you're in rather than denying it exists or wishing it didn't. Okay. One wish, though, you might have is what the ACCC finds from its digital platforms inquiry. What do you want to see if you were, you know, next five years in FIFA? Oh, what do you I, want to see? I don't think that that you want to see a big stick. What what you, what you have to what you have to do is that you have to. I think people have have to understand that Google and Facebook aren't going anywhere. Mm. They provide important services to the community. Um, and they have every right to develop their businesses. There is also a need in the community for high-quality publishing and publishing of all, of all sorts. And what the ACCC should be thinking about is urging those parties to work together to solve the sort of issues that I was just talking about. That is the best way of doing it because... If you get commercial arrangements that work, they will they they will continue. They will sustain it. If you if you try and regulate your way around it, all you do is distort the market. All you do is cause other problems, which you then have to fix. And then all of a sudden, you've got an array of competing uh, uh, of competing regulations that ties everyone up in knots. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you're listening to The Fourth Estate with me, Peter Frey, and uh, our very esteemed guest today is Greg Highwood. The, um, a few more uh, hours, days left as the CEO of Fairfax. Uh, let's talk about you. What, what are you. Do you want to stay in news media? Well, I've been working – well, I had a stint in, in government, in the mm. Victorian government. Uh, you know, I've been a journalist since 19 19- – 76. That's a mm. long time, Peter. I you know. know. And I'm in 64. So give us a break, will you? <laughs> well, only if you <laughs> I want deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, you have been associated with the vacant chair of the ABC, for instance. So don't you want that gig? I, w- I would not comment on anything <laughs> relating to the, that but role. But if they asked you or, to do or, it, or, or any it? other role, I would just not comment. Uh, well, okay. I, when you have. Uh, have you have strong views about the ABC though? I mean, uh, you you criticise them for you know, taking out Google ads to compete with Fairfax. Oh yeah, I I, I just thought that um, you know in Morales as CEO of Fairfax that um, there were there was you know there was an inquiry into into the ABC around competitive neutrality, and we felt that that, that, that from a Fairfax perspective that there was that the ABC was extending its competition into. The commercial environment. So, if you were chair, you would have some influence. Over I that. am not commenting about anything <laughs> to do with the ABC or any role, mate. I just can't imagine you at the tender age of sixty-four uh, playing golf and you know driving around in a sports car. Or whatever you're going to do, I mean, I just can't imagine it. 
Why? Because you're, you know, I have a. I want to because I, you're you're a highly tuned, you know, beast. <laughs> <laughs> so well, uh, you get bored easy, don't you? I mean, you're not going to. I don't around. know. I'll find out. Well, you're not going to sit around writing reading books, are you? Or are you going to write a book? Oh, look, anything could happen. Who knows? You haven't got any plans. I really don't have any plans. I mean, through my very fortunate career, I've just done one job, finished it, and seen what's happened next. Seriously. Really? Yep. Okay, well, um, we'll get you back on the show in six months' time. <laughs> um, that, that about wraps it up for this, uh, for this edition of The Fourth Estate. Um, Greg Howard, thank you so much for uh, being on the show. Wish you all the best in the future. Thanks, Peter. Good to talk to you. Um, and you've been listening to The Fourth Estate, and uh, you can catch this episode on uh, 2SER or on the Community Broadcast Network and, of course, on your podcast device of your choice. Uh, we'll be back very soon for another edition. Until then, thanks for listening. 